Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Ocean Protect podcast talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Garth Kometer, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Mate, where are you calling from today? Currently, I'm calling from Toronto, Ontario in Canada. It's a nice rainy day outside. Oh, it's pouring here in Brisbane. Absolutely bucketing. Yeah, uh, but- Canada's been uh, in the paper or on the news quite recently, your Prime Minister's taking a hell of a lot of shit from everyone, and the country seems to be um, making waves and protests in New Zealand and Australia, and uh, it's been a sort of a, a pretty big thing on the world scale. How is it living over there, and, um, you know, what do you see on the ground there, Garth? Yeah, I guess we've had these uh, trucker protests, as they're called. So honestly, it's been fine. I mean, we had the truckers in Toronto here for a while, and then they went to Ottawa, I think, where they still kind of are. or They've got been booted out of now or something. But I didn't really notice too much of an effect. I think there was one time where I was driving and Google Maps took me on some big long route to avoid me going through downtown. That was maybe the, the only impact on me at one point. But, you know, realistically, it's like such a tiny percentage of the population that's involved in these sort of things you know and yet it makes the news of course like majority of canadians are very pro vaccines and uh having restrictions and things like that and even i think it's like something like 80 or 90 percent of truckers themselves like support them so it's a bit of an um, anomaly yeah yeah and um i saw recently that you tried to put some legislation through that or it might have gone through that the the banks had to share the financial information of people so that they could freeze the assets so they couldn't get the fuel through to the truckers or something. Is that, has that been smashed wow. around? I haven't really been following the financial <laughs> end of it. I know like some people's bank accounts have been being frozen or something if they've donated, I think to the, to the cause, something like that. But I, yeah, I, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, so it's, 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 I've actually read about it because I don't know how I have, and um, it's given, <laughs> it's given government so much power. They can give, your financial information to the government and then the government can go freeze your bank account so you cannot yeah it's 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 why that's why a lot of people are going up in arms going well hold on right which is in a way sort of funny that people are freaking out now that you know they have access when it's like well you know all like pretty much all the major companies in the world already have all of that information But the government freezing bank accounts because they're supporting the truckers. Well, I'm not entirely wow. sure. I imagine there's probably more legal depth to it. I haven't yeah. looked into it myself 
you know, like there must be some legal reason, like at least as far as I know of the Canadian government, they don't do that. They tend to at least try to have a legal reason, I guess, yeah, to yeah, back yeah. them. So I imagine there's probably more depth to it, but I don't know it. So I wouldn't want to, well, you know, com- comment either way. <laughs> well, mate, um, it's good that you're safe and sound. And uh, as uh, Brad said, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast, where uh, we're going to talk today about truckers in Canada. Um, <laughs> yeah, or we're we're yeah. going to talk about microplastic. I don't know. Let's maybe jump into a bit of microplastic. Either or. Maybe we should talk about something that Garth probably knows a little bit more about. Yeah, uh, give me a and, less and, hot and water, should... too. <laughs> 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 Probably getting into less trouble. Uh, your, your bank account might still remain open if we focus on microplastics. But look, uh, Garth, you are, am I right in saying you're a postdoctoral fellow from the uh, University of Toronto? So we do appreciate your, uh, I think you're staying up late to talk to us this morning. Is that is that right? No, not really. It's uh, 5.40 p.m. in the early oh. evening here. So it's, it's oh, really, I'm just finishing up a work day in my my office, actually, uh, I'm able to be on campus, so I'm I'm actually in an office at the University of Toronto, which is wow. And so, what's your what's your current role, Garth? Yeah, so currently I am working in the lab of Chelsea Rockman, and so she is a, a microplastics researcher here at the University of Toronto. She's pretty well known, I think, on the world scale in terms of microplastics researcher. Has done a lot of really really, really cool work, both in the microplastics world and as well as with this, their associated chemicals. And then also does some cool, um, both kind of like outreach and political adjacent sort of work involving doing cleanups and of plastic in the city and in other areas. And then also like deploying these, like, I think they're called sea bins that are collecting plastic from say, we have Lake Ontario here, which is a very large lake. And so they have these bins out in marinas and things like that, collecting trash. And so she's very involved in all of these different things. But I'm specifically here in her lab working on microplastics and how they might affect food webs, basically. So trying to link mm. ecology to microplastics. We have some experiments that we're kind of working on. But yeah, that's kind of the elevator pitch for that. And so how did you get interested in microplastics? So I would say it actually, sort of funnily enough, I had a bit of a gap in between my undergraduate degree when I, when I finished it, which was in 2012, and when I started graduate school, uh, which wasn't until 2016, the start of 2016. So in that period, I was kind of just, I had done a bit of research experience stuff, like I'd worked as a laboratory assistant and a technician in a lab at the University of British Columbia over in BC in Canada. And then I kind of like fell out of the science, off the science train a bit. I was working random jobs, working in coffee shops and landscaping and stuff. It was actually when I was landscaping that I, and I read a book. Well, first of all, I guess I was looking for volunteer experiences to get back into the world of science because I'd been kind of out of it. And I was like, I think I do really want to pursue this more, whether it's getting a job or graduate school. I was probably leaning towards graduate school because I didn't have so much work experience in science. My friend actually lent me this book, which was A Plastic Ocean by uh, Captain Charles Moore out of California. And so I read this book and it was all about plastic in the ocean and this emerging phenomenon of microplastics. And so back, I forget exactly when this book was published, probably, I guess, like 2010 or 11 or something. I was like, oh, wow, this is a really interesting issue that I basically never heard of at that point. You know, in 2015, people weren't really talking about plastic in the ocean which is wild to us now thinking, you know, you hear about it almost every day. But back then, it just wasn't really in the news. No one knew what microplastics were. I didn't know what they were at that time. 
most people, if you said the word microplastic, would just look at you like you were crazy. So, you know, I read this book and I, and it has sort of struck me as the perfect combination of like a really into, interesting subject that was also linked to ecology and biology, which is what my undergrad degree was in and what I was really interested in. And, but also that was very new. And so had a lot of room for future contributions, basically. And I think, and it kind of, you know, something lit a spark in me where I was like, this is something I could actually get excited about. And I could see myself doing research on, you know, in graduate school. Timing really worked out well. And I ended up finding there was a, at the time, she was a professor at the University of um, Vancouver Island over in British Columbia and had put up an ad basically looking for a grad student. Not an ad so much as, you know, a circulated email that someone ended up forwarding to me who I had worked with previously. And it was like, we're looking for a student to come and do a master's degree working with microplastics in shellfish and relation to shellfish aquaculture. And I was like, boom, this is perfect. Did that. And from there, it was kind of a year later, I switched into the PhD program and then did my PhD over the next five years or so. And then that's got to here. So it kind of all began from reading that book, sort of the initiating event. Wow. The planets aligned and here we are. And I came across you, Garth, you co-authored a paper and this is sort of how this sort of podcast chat all, all came about because this is something we've been talking about offhand, Jeremy, myself and others for a while is the, I guess the impact of microplastic pollution in our environment on humans. And I, you co-authored this paper and it's in the uh, Journal of Environmental Science and Technology uh, it's, and it's called Human Consumption of Microplastics. And I'll include a link to this uh, paper in the show notes. And it's a hell of a read. I read it again this morning. But for people who, I guess, haven't read the uh, paper, why did you and your team actually decide to undertake this study in the first place? Yeah, so I undertook this during my PhD. This was at the University of Victoria. It was me and another grad student, actually, who was kind of in my lab at the time. We were friends and we were just always talking about different issues within microplastics. He works more on things like noise pollution and uh, other sort of anthropogenic stress stresses. But he was also very interested in microplastics. And even though none of us really do work on human health, we were just kind of talking and we kind of realized, you know, there isn't really, we have these papers that have been coming out, you know, looking at different things that humans eat, but no one yet has really gone through and actually tabulated that data and like put it all together and come up with like an estimate for how much exposure would happen for humans. Like people had kind of done it to bits and pieces, like maybe just looking at seafood or something, but no one had really yet mm. put it all together. And so, you know, it was both a very interesting opportunity to explore, but also just like a cool novel thing that we had, you know, seemed like a gap that could be filled. So, so from there, we kind of, yeah, just went about with, along with the help of, uh, Haley Davies, who was an undergrad at the time, and and she kind of was like the master of collecting a lot of the literature and you know pulling out all the data and stuff. And so we worked together on getting this data, these data together, and we went with the U.S. just because there was a lot of readily available information in terms of like consumption and stuff. There's just a lot of statistics you can just find online in terms of you know the recommended diet for Americans, and then also uh, how much bottled water, for example, and alcohol and things like that they might consume. So we used that and, and we pulled those data and, and related it to those consumption rates to come up with this kind of like early estimate 
of microplastics uh, exposure for humans, you know, and we wanted we, we didn't want to say definitively, you know, like and, and there has been criticism of this paper since then saying, you know, you missed all these things and uh, didn't take these in things, other things into account. But, you know, at the like we were really trying to just say, you know what, this is like probably a huge underestimate and it's super preliminary, mm. but we want to at least kind of start that conversation, which I think the paper has done because there has then I think been this, there was a big increase in these sorts of paper after that, mm. which I, I don't know if it's mm. a direct correlation, but I'd, I'd like to think hopefully we at least kind of like start stimulated other people saying, oh, we need, we have these research gaps we need to fill and, and, and things like that. We certainly started this conversation, but just recapping on that methodology. So it's a more or less a literature review. You're basically compiling a whole bunch of data around microplastic contamination and in, ingestion and inhalation rates with a focus on the American population, I guess. So I, I guess the, the million dollar question now is how much microplastics does the average American uh, consume or ingest? Yeah. So based on our study at the time, which was in 2019 and based on data, you know, that had come out prior to that, there have since been a lot more studies published with more data. But basically based on our analysis at that time, we had, I think it was, so we had 26 studies and basically from the average sort of the recommended caloric intake for Americans that accounted for about 15% of calories that would be eaten by the average person. So, you know, that's only about 15% of the diet really we're even talking about here, so, which is why these are going to be underestimates. But we found uh, our estimates set around 39,000 to 52,000 particles per year, basically, depending on age and sex, which is the range there. And then this would go up, basically, practically doubling when you add in inhalation as a source. So the first num- those first two numbers were from water and food, like food and beverages, essentially. And the second one, which is 74,000 to 121,000 particles per year, include inhalation. Because when you inhale particles, you might cough out some of them, but actually a lot of them, once they go in your respiratory tract, are going to get the the cilia in your respiratory tract will push them up and they'll actually will end up getting ingested as well. Mate, that sounds like a hell of a lot of plastic to me. Can we put this into some type of perspective? How, when you say particles, what what's that particle size you're talking about? And can you give us an estimate on total mass? Like, did I eat two hot dogs with the plastic this year? What you know what I mean? Yeah. So it is hard to wrap our head around these numbers because there is a lot of uncertainty associated with this. So researchers tend to define microplastics as being one to 5,000 microns in uh, along their longest dimension, basically. So that is 5,000 microns is one millimeter, which is about the size of perhaps your the nail on your pinky filter or a grain of rice. So anything from you can see, kind of just see, and it's quite small, all the way down into like this very microscopic level, which is the size of like a, like a very small cell, about a micron. Below that, you go into the nanoplastics realm, which is a whole other area of research almost because they're so hard to measure and uh, we just don't very understand them very well. Even that lower end, I would say the like one to a hundred micron size of microplastics are still very poorly understood. They're very hard to measure. But anyway, so there is that that element of size there, which can vary. And so it, which is why it's hard to make kind of like a mass estimate. Uh, some people have done it. There was one, I think, for example, there was a study where they were claiming, you know, we're 
eating, I think it was like five grams per year, which was they were saying was equivalent to like a credit card. I have some a lot of questions about the methodology behind that paper. There was a lot of assumptions they sort of made about mass. Like I think they assumed the mass of an the average mass of a microplastic particle to be much higher than it actually is. Um, mm, okay. but yeah, but there have been other works. So like, I would say one of the more recent papers that does probably a better job than our paper as well is from the lab of, uh, Dr. Uh, Kilmans, who is in the Netherlands. And so, uh, I think his, I think at the time she was there, his PhD student. So it was doc, Dr. Mohamed Noor and they was the lead author in this paper called lifetime accumulation of microplastic in children and adults. I was just kind of reviewing this. So they kind of like, you know, what went from our sort of method that we had used uh, doing something similar, and then they actually then rescaled, they call it. So you can kind of estimate the probability distribution of size of my microplastics that would exist. So you can say like, okay, we have these limited methodologies. We're mostly measuring the larger hmm. particles, but we can kind of like calibrate those and adjust them to account for those smaller particles, which are hard to count. They actually came up with higher, as you would expect, they come up with higher uh, yearly estimates for microplastic consumption. So theirs was 883 particles per person per day for adults, basically, which is roughly six times what we had said in our paper. Wow. They also looked at a few other things. For example, they did some other modeling to suggest that you could expect some portion of those to accumulate over the lifetime of a person and other things like that. But that is probably like perhaps a more up-to-date estimate Although it should be said, you know, in there as well, we're still missing some major food categories like grains, like bread, for example, uh, right? Things like bread and rice, which are obviously massively consumed worldwide and red meat and poultry um, and other and vegetables as well. So we're still missing data on, on all those sources. Just going back to something that you touched on before. You know, when you, you wrote your paper and then people have now sort of said, oh, you, you didn't use this or you didn't think about this. Isn't that the point of writing papers? You know, like when, when that the, the person who came out and said we're ingesting two credit cards with the plastic that made worldwide headlines. Sure, it wasn't, you know, they didn't go through everything, or as you just said, they made some estimates that, you know, probably shouldn't have. But doesn't that then put it out to the to the, the, the science community so people can shoot holes in it, so then people can further research? Yeah, that's absolutely how science works. Although I would say, like, I think, you know, to some extent, some of those when there are like potentially flawed, like, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to say when there's like bigger flaws in methodology, like theoretically should be caught, you know, at a somewhat earlier stage, you know, through the peer review process. But that often actually doesn't really happen. Just, I don't know, it's there's a we could have a whole other podcast about the peer review system. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. so, you know, like once it's there, then yeah, I think, you know, that is very much, and which is why, you know, any criticisms of our study, I'm always like super open to And I'm like, okay, well do it better. That's how science works. You know, it's like, we see things, we criticize it. And I do the same thing and we try to do it better. We try to improve upon it. I think the one risk in that though, is just what gets then in that entire process. Like you'd almost see this, even just looking at the last couple of years in the pandemic of just like in that scientific process, which is a very natural and good process, like what makes it to the media, what goes out to people and, you know, what do people mm -hmm. freak out about and what do they take home as their messaging? Uh, and often it's not exactly like the most important thing in that process. Like it doesn't always yeah. do an excellent job of translating into the medium. Yeah, it's a headline grab, really. I mean, you know, if that credit card consumption paper 
that went all around Australia. Brad and I have quoted it. It's a headline. You know, people are shocked. Oh, my God, I'm eating that much plastic. And then obviously it detracts away from, I guess, some of the other things that were within it. But um, but what it certainly did, though, Garth, it certainly raised people's awareness, you know. Um, hats off. It's, it's like um, you said before, uh, Pete Kalinske and his Siebens getting put in marinas all around the world. I think Pete's doing an amazing job. We as stormwater nuts, we are a little bit apprehensive, I guess, about some of the claims. We know as uh, a lot of microplastics or the vast majority of microplastics actually sink as opposed to float at the top of the water column. But what he's done is he's brought media, he's brought attention. You know, he's shone a light on something that I guess we as Brad and myself and our stormwater industry, we haven't been able to do it. So without those key bits of headline grabs or those key bits of technologies that make claims or, or go out and do things, then it doesn't really raise the awareness of the general public, I think. Brad, thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, look, that credit card with plastic consumed, that's a, that's a weekly estimate. And look, it's probably a very rubbery number, but whether it's a, a credit card worth of plastic every week or every month, or every year, um, I, I think the key thing is we actually don't know what the impacts of that are. So, you know, fundamentally, it's a lot of microplastics. Like you're talking about thousands of um, little bits of particles, which all are chemicals within themselves and also act like sponges to a whole bunch of other chemicals. And fundamentally, they're going through us. They are often next to our vital organs in our bellies. Hopefully, they come out the other end sometimes. But a lot of the time, they do accumulate. And I think the big concern I have is we don't know what the impact of that, whether it's one microplastic particle or, or a million. There's a real void of the, of the knowledge around the potential impacts associated with that. But just, just getting back to, I guess, the study, like, and this is where I think it's the numbers are, you know, I guess, wash over people. But it's really interesting to see where this plastic is actually coming from. So I guess a, a question I had for you, if you want to explain, Garth, is what are the key ingestion or consumption pathways for this plastic? Is it eating, drinking, inhalation? What is it? So from what we know so far, you know, the studies that have, have looked at it and then also have compiled data as, as we did have kind of always shown that inhalation is usually the top, the, the top one, just because especially the smaller microplastics and fibers and things are very mobile in the air. They'll get blown around. And, and I always like say, you know, when you're making your bed or something and there's like a sunbeam of light coming through and you sh shake the sheets and you just see all that dust flying in there, you know, a lot of that is probably your own skin cells, but there's also going to be a lot of that that is going to be just bits of microplastics and things from all the things in your home when you look, when we look around our homes, you know, we have like plastic carpeting, plastic drapes, plastic clothing, all the various things that we use in our day to day life. So much of that is plastic. And those things are all when UV lights hitting them, when we're moving them around and hitting them on things are just constantly going to be releasing these tiny microplastic mm. particles. So, so the inhalation there is, is going to be the biggest source after that there. I think it really will depend on say like the food or the beverage and what it has come into contact with. There's been some studies suggesting, for example, like if you take a plastic tea bag, so some of these tea bags nowadays are apparently plastic. So there are these like nylon tea mm. bags and some studies have suggested if you, if you um, boil that in water, like you're making tea and then look at the water, there's going to be a huge amount, like millions of microplastics in that water. So so things that are plastic, especially as exposed to heat, I would say, 
are going to generate a lot more microplastics. And then anything that involves like a lot of plastic packaging, like we know, for example, bottled water tends to have way more microplastics in it than say tap water. And so I think probably your exposure level will to some extent at least be determined by like your home environment, you know, how much plastics around you. And then also like how much of your food and beverages is packaged in plastic or has been processed involving plastic. That's a really, for me, a real key message that comes out of the paper is that a lot of people would think, oh, I'm eating a lot of plastic. It must be in seafood or something like that. But fundamentally, it actually is the key, the key ingestion pathway is inhalation. And like you said, it's often uh, plastic from your home environment. Me, I don't have carpets. I don't, I don't have uh, plastic curtains or whatever, uh, but I do get around in lycra. So I know I've got a little bit of plastic in my uh, clothing. Fundamentally, you can make, I guess, decisions in your own uh, home environment to minimize that plastic uh, inhalation. But I guess it'd be fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, Garth, is that probably the urban high density uh, urban environments where you've got lots of people are probably do have higher proportions of plastic in the, in the atmosphere because there's more people, more clothing fibers, more car tire wear and tear, more plastic breakdown or break up, et cetera. Um, so there's sort of things you can do to sort of minimize that. But also, to your point around, you know, plastic in our uh, in our products, whether you're drinking tap water or bottled water, it was staggering to see the difference between plastic ingestion, whether you're drinking tap water or bottled water from your study. That was amazing. Anyone who thinks you're hip and groovy by drinking uh, plastic bottled water, forget about it. You are drinking plastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Garth, can you um, can you tell us uh, the the facts or or the figures around that? Because I read that too, and I'm like. Wow. So, it's staggering. Yeah. Garth, could you uh, let our listeners know all the bottled water drinkers out there? Yeah. Yeah. So basically when we, we took our data and we sort of played with the inputs and we we're saying, you know, what would be the difference if you only drank tap water versus if you only drank bottled water to get all your water from bottled water? So it was like about 4,000 extra microplastics per year from tap water if you're just drinking tap water. But that went up to 90,000 if you're just drinking bottled water. So, so you know, that's, uh, oh man, I have to do that math in my head. But that's, you know, like it's a lot. more than yeah. 20 times uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. essentially the amount of microplastics in bottled water than tap water. And other studies do also seem to back that up. Like, and it makes a ton of sense, right? Tap water goes to like a ton of filtration and then it's going through pipes that might to some extent be plastic, but like, you know, often I'd say those pipes are not necessarily going to be just, you know, shedding tons of microplastics in there. So they're, and it's usually kept in a closed off environment. So the, like the exposure to additional contamination is pretty minimal, you know, because we're trying to keep other stuff out of there. So it, it makes sense. Meanwhile, you have a bottle of water that's been bottled somewhere in under who knows what conditions in a factory and then shipped and maybe it sat in the sun, sun somewhere. And that was, you know, degrading some of the, the plastic in the bottle and the cap I think is also a big source and then you open it mm. and you're potentially you know think about that tearing process even as you're opening it yeah. and then you know so there's just tons of ways that that water is exposed to plastic yeah Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But, but ultimately, that probably is really interesting and would encourage people to essentially drink less bottled water or even even less plastic bottled anything, really. It doesn't mean if it's water or, or a bottle of soft drink, it's still in a plastic container, which will equally degrade and break up and whatever, and it's ultimately be ingested. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, even a bottled water to me is always has always been the no brainer in here, which is just if you live somewhere where you have good tap water, which is, you know, a lot of people in in uh, more developed countries, you know, there are tons of people in the world, probably even the majority who don't have access to clean drinking water. And so for those people, you know what, like the health benefits of clean water from a bottle of water is going to be better than no water. So those people might not have the option. But if you do have the option, you know, like in Canada, for example, and we generally have really, really good drinking water, you can drink from the tap. And so it's kind of crazy to me that people would go and buy, like pay money for a bottle water that was bottled potentially somewhere that, you know, may have even had more lax restrictions than our local drinking water, for example. So like, there's no guarantee it's even more pure or whatever has less contaminants in it than your tap water. And yeah, go pay money for that and then drink it when you literally have free water that comes out of your tap and you don't need a package for it. It just kind of blows my mind. I I remember that. Geez, showing my age, what, 20 years? Oh, here we go. 20 20 years ago, (laughs) going to my local service station. And I think back then, $5 would nearly sort of half fill your little car, like with the gas. And I I remember seeing pump for the first time. Pump. And I went, it's a water brand. I don't know if you have it up there, Garth. Yeah, yeah, I know pump water. And I remember going, what what, what do we need? What what do we need this water for? Why why are they selling water? We've got water. And then it just went, just exploded onto the scene. And now, you know, water is, I think, pumps actually owned by Coca-Cola. It still defies me to this day. Like, what, what, why are we doing this? Why are we putting it in plastic? So to all the listeners out there, don't drink plastic water, really. I mean, but in a, in a similar vein, uh, it's, it's around the message of minimising the consumption of products that are wrapped in plastic or come in plastic packaging. So whether it's water or a, or a meat tray or whatever, if it's wrapped in plastic, there's a high likelihood that you are going to be at least ingesting some of that plastic. So again, if, you can buy, if you're buying products, try to minimise the, the, the plastic wrapping or plastic containers that, uh, that these products but come it's, in. But it's, it's, it's near impossible to, to avoid it in some, you know, like some of your protein drinks yeah. that, you know, I know you have, or, yeah. you know, like if, if you go through what I consume on a daily basis, you're like, well, it just comes in that, you know, you, you, can't, you can't do it any other way. Uh, it's, it's interesting. To an extent. To, yeah. to an extent. We're starting to see, like, certainly in Australia, but, um, I haven't been home for a while, but, um, you know, Coles and Woolies, supermarket chains, um, not wrapping vegetables in plastic. And, I mean, for a while there, a few years ago, you, it, everything was just wrapped and wrapped in plastic. And, and like you said, Garth, 2015, the world wasn't really talking about plastic back then. I, I think it, 
I think it really started to around the 2017, 2018, social media, plastic in the aquatic areas around the world. You know, social media has been a really big part of, of pushing this issue to scientists like self and, and, and to, to people around the world to go, hold on, this is, you know, we're seeing this plastic in whales and turtles and, you know, what about us? And, and for years on the show, Garth, we've been asking, is the consumption of microplastics and, and, and us ingesting it, is it a human health issue? And, and up until, I guess, this season, no one's really turned around and said a definitive yes, really. So, Garth, to you, do you think it's a human health issue? I'm probably going to have to disappoint you here. I mean, I just would have to say, like, we just don't have the science yet to say for sure that it is or it isn't. I would say that from what we know from studies, like, it could be. So I kind of talk about this. I like to talk about this and toxicologists talk about this in terms of, like, hazard and risk. So you have a, like, an easy sort of similar thing to understand would be, like, You have a cigarette, a cigarette, you know, it is bad for you, right? There is a hazard associated with that cigarette. It has toxic chemicals in it. If you smoke it, they could potentially have an effect on you. But if you smoke one cigarette your entire life, you're probably going to be fine, right? Those chemicals are going to have a pretty minimal effect on you long term. It's when you start increasing the dose, increasing the exposure, the amount of times you're exposed to it, then the risk of those cigarettes comes into play. So, you know, that risk is basically the hazard inherent hazard in the thing times the exposure. And so for microplastics, we know hazard. We can expose an animal to like a gajillion microplastics in the lab and we see a negative health effect. But often those studies use much higher concentrations than are exist in the environment. And it's hard to do these studies for humans, especially, right? There are studies that can show toxic, you know, these sort of like genomic or physiological or, you know, very like small scale changes to the function of a a cell or like a, you know, like a basically like a fake organ or something in a lab. We, We know that that can happen when you expose them to enough microplastics, but we just don't know. We don't have good meth estimates. You know, we have these preliminary estimates like our study for exposure. Um, But we also don't really know, we have to relate those to, so that's talking about things that go in your body, but we have to then get to the point of all those microplastics going in your body, like how long do they stay in your body, how much, and where do they move, and then how long do they stay in those places that they move to, and then, you know, what's the dynamics there? And those studies are very hard to do because, like, you know, how do you figure out how much a microplastic is like moving into your liver, a human liver or something. There's probably going to be, I haven't seen them really yet. There's been a few kind of autopsy type studies or, or people who have gone through like surgery or something and had like biopsies removed showing that microplastics can end up in organs and tissues and things. But then, you know, figuring out what is the actual exposure at that level where they're going to be toxic? Because we, I, I would probably, you know, I'd kind of like a somewhat educated guess would be that most microplastics we're consuming just go right through the body and have very little effect on us. What percentage of those is actually going to get somewhere where they're going to be able to do some harm to us? And then does that then relate to like health effects that are uh, something we need to be concerned about? And we're just, we're just going to need a lot more work, I think, to get to that point of answering that question. But do we have that luxury of time? 
so we're in this sort of period where plastic consumption is you know, increasing dramatically. Plastic is in the top of the Alps and the bottom of the deepest ocean trenches. It's in crazy concentrations in even the remote wildernesses areas and obviously high concentrations in our urban environments. We're obviously consuming a whole bunch of plastic. You're telling me that it can, obviously the majority of it does just go straight through or through us eventually fairly quickly. Some of it, I'm guessing, particularly if it goes into the lungs, is going to stay there for a reasonably amount of uh, long uh, time to potentially cause some damage. We do know plastic is just essentially chemicals uh, that can absorb other chemicals. So we know that it, those chemicals can be quite toxic and essentially stay in our body. All these things indicate to me that there is a, at least a, a potential human health risk. So with the, uh, with the based on the sort of science we have to date, Recognizing that it's not completely conclusive, surely we could take a precautionary approach and say, okay, this is a potential carcinogen or potential human health hazard. We really do need to step up our game and minimize the generation, production, and exposure of microplastics. Yeah. Is that not a reasonable assumption? I think that's very reasonable. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, we know enough to know. Well, we know at the very least, you know, we, we're making all these plastics and we know that these macroplastics, the bigger plastics end up in the environment. And we have demonstrated impacts of those on wildlife. So at like the very least, we know we're releasing too much plastic waste in the environment, which is having an impact on wildlife. And no matter how way you cut it, you know, we lead to at the very least manage our plastic waste much better. And a huge part of that, you know, we just don't even have the infrastructure to deal with like all the plastic that we're making in most parts of the world. So like we do need to use less new new plastic especially and you know recycle plastic a lot more. Then the other issue there is like just it, it, unfortunately, you know, we can act under precautionary principle, but so many of the like regulatory systems in the world around things like chemicals are really built off concentrations. And so usually, you know, when you want to regulate a chemical and say like, well, there can only be this much in food or in drinking water, or which then relates back to like directly regulating the industry, the people making it and saying, you know, you can't use this so much because there's this much in this thing is like you do and then need to have like a number of, you know, we need to keep concentrations below this amount. And that's been, I think, one of the big challenges with microplastics is it's just no one has that number and it's so hard to get to because they are such a complicated kind of thing. They're very multifactorial. There's more than just one chemical involved and there's shapes and sizes and associated chemicals. And so it's really, really, really hard to get to that like point, that number to say like, you make sure humans are exposed to less than this. And like without that kind of like goalpost, it's like really very difficult to say then regulate industry, which is why so what you've seen so far in terms of plastic production, like a lot of it has been very voluntary in terms of companies responding to people, you know, like basically wanting less packaging and saying, you know, we don't want this. Mm -hmm. uh, but there has been emerging government regulations. But yeah, thus far, it hasn't happened to a massive extent, as you might see when if you say found some chemical was causing cancer at a certain concentration, like you would see probably yeah. a mass, you know, yeah. banning. My concern is Sorry to interrupt. My concern is analysis leads to paralysis. So if I use an example of PFAS, for example, PFAS is a potential carcinogen. They actually don't know what the safe environmental limit of it is. In Australia, we've got some preliminary targets uh, based on drinking water guidelines, et cetera, and we're not really even sure if they're appropriate, but they're at least something. But uh, so, and, and PFAS is, is a sort of chemical group, uh, polyfuryl alcohol substance, but there's a whole bunch of different PFAS types, chemicals, et cetera. Very similar to plastic. 
my concern is we have currently no microplastic target or guideline or objective for any of our receiving environments, whether it be air, water, soil, food. But meanwhile, we sort of still see us ingesting plastic, producing plastic at exorbitant rates. We know, we know the science isn't, isn't completely there, but my, my bigger concern is we're kind of almost doing nothing to really stem the tide of plastic pollution. Yeah, I agree with that. I wish I had a better prognosis or, you know, some <laughs> solutions for you really. But, you know, I think you probably already know any solution that I would suggest, you know, using less plastic and regulation and things. But like, yeah, how we're going to get there is is challenging. And I don't mm. even, you know, I'm more of a, re- mostly a research scientist and I'm generally yeah. studying the effects on the relation to ecology and things like that. So all that stuff is is often beyond me as well, but I think you're absolutely right. There was a couple of papers, there was two papers published, I think it was 2020 in science from two different groups. And both of them basically showed that if you model, like as similar to climate models, you know, where you look at our emissions of carbon dioxide and how that relates to green, uh, climate change, they kind of did that with plastics. And they're like, based on our, the way our production is going, et cetera, even if we took like the most strict measures to try to reduce plastic waste going into the environment, we would still see an increase in the next few decades because just like just the momentum we have for the plastic that we're using mm-hmm. is just so massive. You know, it, it would take a huge like concerted global effort basically to reduce plastic and deal with plastic waste. You know, so much of the world don't have the have infrastructure for even dealing with trash very well. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's massive yeah. efforts yeah, necessary to, to deal with. It's very much like a huge global problem. I think we'll need some, probably some international treaties similar to like climate, the you know, Paris climate agreement and things like that to, to deal with this kind of problem. I'm sort of with you, Brad, and not against you, Garth, this is, uh, at all, but I'm sort of with you, like we, we've, we've spoken to a lot of people on this show, a lot of people to do with uh, obviously the ocean, but, but plastic's been a big part of it. And they've all said the same thing, Garth. Look, we just don't have the research. Look, we're not, you know, and 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 that's time, money, whatever. But to, to Brad's point, well, why isn't there more of a concerted effort to go? Well, fucking fund this, get the research, get this sorted. I mean, we have we've had a global pandemic. All of a sudden, we could create vaccines very quickly, and you know, they threw a large amount of cash at it. Great. Now we're sort of hopefully coming out the end of it with all the red flags around plastic. Why is there not more of a concerted effort from a regulatory point of view? And that's an opening question, I guess. I'll start off with the answer. It's because of money. You know, absolutely. It's, absolutely. It's money, 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 money. I mean, you can draw the direct parallels with, <laughs> and, you know, you could ask all of those exact same questions stated the exact same way about climate change, right? And it's very yeah. much interlinked. Both come from fossil fuels. Both are, you know, generally produced by some of the largest corporations on the planet. So, and richest. So, yeah, I think in a way you uh, answer I'll, your own question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an example. And Brad, you're, you're across this, but there's a guy called Mike Cannon Brooks, who's uh, the third richest uh, guy in Australia. He's a tech sort of entrepreneur. And he's really into the environment and, you know, he's just an all-round legend. He wanted to buy, like, Australia's oh. um, AGL, which is a power company. You know, they pump, they make coal and whatever and coal, coal-fired power stations. He offered to, to, to buy the whole entity and he offered the shareholders 
I think, 4.7% above their current valuation. So a fair $8 billion. $8 billion yeah. A fair, a fair um, price for the shareholders. You know, they're all going to get paid. And he proposed to buy them. And then he was going to slowly phase out the coal power stations and, and increase renewable energy within, you know, this entity. And the government's blocked it. And, and the government's gone, no, 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 we need to run these coal things out for longer. And it's like, well, you know, the challenge is there. That you've got a guy who's loaded who really wants to do something really great and it's, and it's fantastic, but the government are like, no, we need these coal things to run for another 20 years. It's like, well, what else do you do? I mean, the, the guy's got all the money in the world. He's trying to do something good. And the good old Aussie government go, no. So, um I uh, know it's just a, it's it's in the papers in Australia at the moment. Yeah. You've seen it. It's it's a disgrace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and meanwhile, like if I if I get back to the uh, plastic problem as well, like let, let's let's call them out Coca Cola. Uh, they're probably I think they're regarded as the biggest plastic polluter on the world. I know they have funded provided money towards. You, you mentioned the Seabin initiative before. Like I think the Seabin initiative is great, but it ultimately is a is a clean up technology. It's scooping microplastics or other plastics from the, the surface of marinas and other sort of still water environments, etc. But ultimately, it's cleanup. And if all we ever do is clean up, it's all we will ever do. And ultimately, we do need to turn off the tap of plastic pollution. And the reason I, I sort of bring up Coca-Cola is that I, I think they're just greenwashing. Oh, look, if they want to put money towards Seabin or saving the rainforest or Ocean Protect, great. But fundamentally, they are the problem. They need to turn off the tap. They need to stop generating plastic. And when they're sort of sugarcoating themselves by throwing money at cleanup initiatives, I just call BS, basically. So... Yeah, look, I'm not sure what your uh, your university supervisor how they're involved in the CPIN project without getting into too much trouble. But look, I think it's again, it's a good technology, but it fundamentally, we need we need to do far more to stem the tide of plastic pollution. And for me, it starts with the plastic generators, the fossil fuel companies, uh, and the plastic manufacturing uh, groups, particularly the likes of Coca-Cola. Yeah. yeah, most definitely agree. And I mean, just you can see it just looking at the history of. There's stories out of the U.S., for example, in North America. I'm not exactly sure it was like there, you know, but we have those recycling labels like on the bottom of plastics. Always growing up, I thought that that was there because, you know, it like told you that it was uh, recyclable, you know, and what kind of and that the recyclers used it. But like there's an amazing I think it's on uh, NPR, one of the NPR podcasts. There's just like an amazing history of that and how basically recyclers, when those showed up in the U.S., looked at them and were like, what the heck are these? Like, I have no idea what, I'm, what this is or what I'm supposed to do with it. You know, it was literally greenwashing by the companies to make people feel like the products, to put them in the recycling and feel, you know, basically wish cycling, feel like you're, you're doing something, but they're essentially meaningless for recyclers, right? They have ways of sort automatically sorting these things out. And some of that stuff that is labeled as recyclable will not be recycled. And it's all super dependent on where you are and the systems that are there and how contaminated it is and et cetera, et cetera. So there's just a lot of like, literally the industry was like, saw that they were going to have a problem because people were starting to say like, oh, we're seeing these like this plastic showing up in our environment because people are littering and stuff. And even like all the anti-littering campaigns essentially were funded by the plastics industry or like people making all the plastics, right? So like similar to the climate change thing, you you essentially see them seeing the way things are going, getting ahead of it and uh, and campaigning to to try to like, you know, kind of like put it under the rug, kick it down the, the lane. Um, but yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, and I, you know, the, the whole kick it down the lane, uh, we had a really interesting chat with Sarah Seabrook, and we are in the fight of our lives for the next 10 years. You know, the, the, we are in a generation where if we don't keep global uh, temperatures down, we're, we're, we're going to spiral out of control. So in Garth's hands, Brad's hands, my hands, we've got to get this done, otherwise we could be fucked and and kicking it down the road for these couple for these larger companies has just got to stop and it only stops through politics and sometimes i fear you know hey we're we're, we're not doing enough fast enough but that's why we've got people like you doing great research so just on that garth what, what's what's next you've obviously you produced this paper what, what can we look forward to seeing out of your camp yeah so we're kind of i'm part of a much larger project we're kind of termed the plastic project so it's like p and then a big e l a s t i c and so that's kind of a bit of like a portmanteau with e l a which so there's a research institute here in canada called the experimental lakes area and it's a long running long term ecological research institute essentially it was run by the government and then it became a, a not for profit some years ago. But basically, they have like a bunch of lakes uh, and an area that we're able to do experiments on. And so we will be exposing uh, animals to different concentrations of microplastics within without additives and things like that. And um, to see just effects in a more natural setting that might occur for for animals. And hopefully we can directly then from those findings, you know, have some policy recommendations, essentially, for policy. So Chelsea, my supervisor, has done a lot of work, for example, with folks in California. So California, I'd say, is very much like leading the at leading on the leading edge in terms of creating policy for microplastics. And so she was involved along with a lot of other folks, but like in that process and the consultation as well. So I think she has a lot of kind of a deeper understanding of that sort of side of things. And so I know this project is a very large. There's a lot of people from like government researchers and academics as well. And so we're all kind of working towards, you know, doing this sort of realistic exposures under natural conditions and try to yeah, come up with um, some hopefully useful information. And my piece of that is is looking at at food webs. And so I'm really interested in who's eating who in a system and how energy is like moving through a system. And if you put in um, a stress, which might be microplastics, then, you know, what kind of happens to the way that energy moves through that system, if like, does anything happen? Um, and, and there's all kinds of other elements too, of like where the microplastics go in a lake and in a system and who's eating them. Mm. And yeah. Interesting. Well, we, we probably should uh, wrap this up, albeit not in plastic, but I guess, excuse the pun, oh, that's about as funny as I get. Hey, hey, boom, boom, shake the room. Uh, but look, You've obviously been living, breathing plastics, as we all have clearly for a while now. So, what's what's your key tidbits of advice for your listeners, for our listeners, whether they be, I guess, I guess, what would be your advice around how to minimizing their own personal microplastic ingestion in their own lives? Yeah, I mean, I think if you were wanting to really minimize, based on what we know from our science right now. Like I said, you know, we don't know for sure that health impacts are going to be having, and we're also exposed to a lot of other chemicals. So it can be overwhelming to think about how this all fits together. But I would say, you know, we, we do know that likely if you're eating things in plastic packaging or you're heating things in plastic, like I, I now try to avoid 
Uh, like I remember when I used to say, take like a plastic Tupperware and microwave it with my lunch in it. And I don't do that anymore. <laughs> so things like we can do little things like that, which, which, I mean, I don't even know if it's having an impact on my health, but at least for peace of mind, you know, you might be exposing yourself to less microplastics and avoiding, um, yeah, things coming like liquids and things, especially like in like bottled water. Yeah. Use your reusable everything when you can, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. And obviously try and get carpets and plastic out of your house, basically. Like, uh, and obviously if we can minimize the wearing of lycra, heaven forbid, maybe we, we, should, we, should, we should try. Yeah, and I mean a big <laughs> one for things going into the environment, if you're concerned about that end of things, is, you know, fibers from our clothing. I try to mostly buy like thrifted, nat- so uh, secondhand um, natural fibers where possible and then, you know, try to reduce and, and we also know things like poly like knitted polyester for example sheds way more fibers so trying to avoid like a fluffy fleece is going to be the biggest um the biggest offender in terms of polluting everything around it but like a like a tighter woven nylon for example like outdoor kind of style gear and there are companies even you know trying to make these clothing that now release less less microplastics and things like that so we can do these things and we have emerging ones like car tire uh, are a big one for releasing all this tire dust um, and I'm sure hopefully we'll start to see some solutions in that space as well. And I think paint I saw was a new one now that people are talking about too. There's a lot of like synthetic paint is potentially a huge source of microplastics in the environment as well. Wow. Garth, um, not sure if you're across this or you'd know, but I'll throw it out to you. Do you know if there's any regulation on wastewater discharge to do with microplastics in Canada? Like I said, California is probably at the cutting edge in terms of those sorts of regulations. Yeah. And they have drinking water regulations, I believe, now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think they have wastewater ones yet, but I think they're probably in the works um, just based on from what I've seen. Yeah, isn't that interesting how that, that's a new thing for the state of California? They've introduced drinking water targets for microplastics, but yet the, the tap water's microplastic contamination is generally quite low. But to the best point of knowledge, there's no requirements for bottled water. Which are which are to your research shows are actually quite quite high in microplastics. It's bizarre that tap water can be have a limit, but bottled water doesn't. It's just right. weird. I think in a way, yeah, <laughs> potentially you get into what they have more easier control of. I guess you can control that at the local, the yeah. municipal level, what have you. Whereas, I don't, mm. yeah, bottled water would be more directly regulating. That. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know too much about the policy end of that, but. To some extent, you're right. But that also gets into like, I have heard, I don't know, maybe this is just anecdotal, but I've heard to some extent that sometimes like bottled water could be shipped, imported from somewhere that has, you know, less stringent drinking water requirements. And so like Mm. your tap water might have actually gone through, say, more processing than or have lower Mm. impurities in it than bottled water anyway. So I think like that issue sort of, it kind of just gets back to the like, just drink tap water if you have good tap water kind of thing. <laughs> if you take nothing away from this, uh, this podcast, drink tap water. Don't drink yeah, water. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And Garth, with that, mate, like you said at the start, we could talk, you know, a whole other podcast on a certain issue. That's exactly what we want to do. So next time you want to talk about something else, please come back <laughs> on the show. But my, my point to this being, there is just so much that we don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's far more questions than we have answers for at the moment. But without the key research of um, yourself and your organisation, we don't get that out into the mainstream. We don't, you know, shoot holes in other people's research and ultimately move forward mm. as a, the human race. So, mate, hats off to you. Thanks very much for coming on this uh, little show of ours. 
we get to meet some uh, great people from all around the world and um, and today's been the same. So thanks very much for coming on and taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You know, that's why, why I do it. I love love pushing these boundaries and answering these questions. So, yeah. Boom, boom. Back to home. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.